Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Head at random times. Um, thank you so much for that. We, we, we thank the Lord for y'all. Um, open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. I want you to think this morning about something you know how to do, something that you know how to do that you're good at. Maybe it's farming, maybe it's a sport, maybe it's, I don't know, playing a musical instrument, maybe it's, you know, some hobby like woodworking. How'd you learn how to do it? The answer is probably someone older and more experienced than you taught you how to do it. Whether it was your grandfather, whether it was a coach, whether it was a piano teacher, somebody who knew what they were doing taught you how to do it. That is the great thing lacking for many young people today. That is more experienced and older people to teach them how to do things. We live in a much different time than some of you grew up in. Um, a hundred today's young today young people can live their entire lives never interacting with people of the older generation, and the older generation can live their entire lives never interacting with anybody of the younger generation. Whereas a hundred years ago, the whole family all lived in a house together, and so the eight-year-olds would play in one room while great grandma was dying uh, of some sickness in the next room over. That's just how families were a hundred years ago. During that time, the younger learned from the older. They regularly interacted with the older. And the older for them was not, were, that older people for them were not just uh, opinions on Facebook that they disagreed with. They were actual people, that they were people with names and faces and stories. Today's much different. When I lived in Louisville for four and a half years, I was pretty clustered around people my age, and that was it. I mean, I went to a church, and there were certainly people not my age there, but primarily as a seminary student and as a worker at Verizon and as a um, just, you know, just the friends I ran around with, most of them were my age. In fact, in the four and a half years I lived there, I went to one funeral, and that was a girl about 19 who had died of cancer, so it was a not normal funeral. Younger people are not learning from the older people today. The younger generation is not learning from the older. In fact, most of them, and honestly, I would say most of us, since I think most of you would classify me in the younger generation, um, we learn everything from YouTube. If we need to know how to do something, we look it up on YouTube. If I'm having car trouble, I'll type in uh, code 89 popped up on my car. What does this mean? But that doesn't always work. I know how to solve a Rubik's Cube. I learned how to do it in high school. I can do it without even thinking now. I learned on YouTube. Things like that you can learn on YouTube, but other things you can't. I considered about a year ago getting into woodworking. I just thought it would be a good hobby for me to do, something to you know, turn my brain off and just work with my hands. Um, I started trying to learn how to do it on YouTube, and I was completely lost. 
just completely lost. What the heck is this saw? What does it mean to cut it this certain way? I got no, this is Latin to me. I got no idea because I needed somebody that knew what they were doing to actually teach me how to do it, not just learn from YouTube. I like to sketch occasionally. It's just a relaxing thing to me. I'll get a sketchbook, sit down with a pencil and an eraser, and I'll start drawing. But the thing is, with drawing, I can't do anything more than 2D. So if I draw a ball, it's a circle. It's not a three-dimensional thing where you can actually see some, some depth with it. So I went on YouTube and thought, how do I draw with depth? How do I make it look three-dimensional? And they were telling me, you know, do this circle and, you know, shade this part and then smudge it with your finger and then move some other stuff around and erase that. And I just ended up with a circle with a smudge on it. That, that's all I got. I, 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 we just got a piano at our house a couple weeks ago, and um, I know enough from band in high school to know how to play the piano and how to key out any song in the hymnal pretty much. Um, I can't do two hands at once. Um, but I've went to YouTube, and I've tried to learn how do I do two hands at once? How do I play the chords over here and do the melody with this hand? can't learn how to do it on YouTube. I just can't. If, here's the deal, whatever it is that I told you to think about, farming, a sport, musical instrument, whatever, that you know how to do, that you do really well, you learned how to do it from somebody else. Somebody taught you, probably somebody more experienced than you, and they taught you how to do it. Here's the question. If you learned everything you know because an older, more experienced person taught you, why would we think church is any different? Why does it take going to seminary for the average Christian to learn the great doctrines of the faith? Um, I, I used to see it in seminary all the time. People come and they, they, they never knew all these great doctrines of the faith. And they get to seminary and they're like, you know, their eyes are opened. That they learn about each one of them laid out very clearly like a med student learns all the bones of the human body. That they didn't learn it in their church. Why is it that when a guy is called into ministry and he goes to seminary, he's extremely arrogant when he gets there often? He walks around with his nose up thinking he knows everything. Well, it's because often he didn't have an older mentor to walk alongside him in his local church to teach him how to not be arrogant and teach him that he didn't know everything. And so usually, thank the Lord, by the time he's done with seminary, he's realized he's not that smart. I actually learned a lot more about being a pastor by interning under a pastor and by being your pastor than I did in seminary because I was learning from people instead of just reading about it. You, you primarily learn Bible and doctrine at seminary. You learn how to be a pastor by being a pastor and pastoring people. So I want us to think this morning about the next generation, um, about reaching the next generation, about investing spiritually in the next generation, and why that's so important. This is something um, we have so many people here that do so well at in our church, but, I, but we always got to think about this, and we always got to re remind ourselves, why do we do this, and why is it so crucial for such a time as this that we live in, in 2022? By the next generation, um, I mean those younger than you. Whatever age you are, those younger than you. So uh, there, there are people younger than me, and then I'm younger than some of you. So the, the people younger than you, that's the next generation for you. But a lot of what I'm going to talk about this morning is focusing on those under 18, those still in school age. The next generation will not learn the faith and will not carry the faith on into the future without us training them up. And so let's look at Titus chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in all your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. This passage, especially there in verses 3 through 5, um, speaks of older women teaching younger women, but I think um, older men teaching younger men is implied because there's so much parts about um, teach the younger men and teach everything that accords with sound doctrine, verse 1. It's all over the place. It's assumed that those who are more spiritually mature are going to be investing in those who are less spiritually mature. That's what the passage assumes, and that's all over Scripture. Matthew 28 is the command Jesus left us with. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's what Jesus left us to do. We're to be making disciples. Or the passage Clint read earlier, One generation shall commend your works to another and declare the mighty acts of God. Psalm 78, verse 4, We will not hide the works of the Lord from our children, but we will tell the coming generation of the glorious deeds of the Lord. Those now are to train up the younger generation. Those of us now, whether we are, um, you know, whether we are my age or retired age, we're to be investing in the younger generation. We're to be teaching the younger generation. Just as biological children are trained up by their parents and grandparents, they learn to walk and talk and eat and sleep. And then more detailed stuff like personal finance, like how to fix a car, how to do chores. Just as parents and grandparents teach their kids those things, younger Christians need spiritual parents and grandparents. When I was in college, um, the Lord did a lot of work in me um, through the Baptist campus ministry, the BCM. Um, and I, I ran into a similar story with a lot of people um, my, my age. Um, prior to coming to college, I was a Christian for three years. I was involved in a church, got saved my sophomore year of high school. And um, in that time, I had one person older than me in any way invest in me spiritually. And it really wasn't anything, you know, formal. It wasn't anything special. I was just friends with him. He was about 10 years older than me. He was in his 20s. I was a teenager. We, we both really liked superheroes and things like that. So we would get together and watch movies, and we would often talk about Jesus and, and, and talk about our walks with the Lord. I had one person do that before I was in college. I got to college, and the campus minister took me under his wing and invested in me spiritually. And much of who I am today as a Christian is because he did that. But God set that up to take place in the local church, and the BCM is to be a supplement to that. When, when I talk about discipleship this morning, this is what I mean by discipleship. Discipleship is taking someone under your wing and meeting with them regularly for the purpose of helping them grow spiritually. That may, mean, that may be a foreign concept to you because you've never had such a thing happen to you. But it, just understand it's a mentoring relationship centered around spiritual growth. Everybody needs that. Everybody needs that. 
Because when I got to college, I learned that for the, most of the kids coming into BCM, they had never had such a thing. Let that not have to be done outside the church. I want the BCM to be supplemental to what our kids get here at our church. The, pat, the text is talking about how older men are to train up younger men. Older women are to train up younger women. Basically, a healthy church is one where everyone in the church has three relationships. I would define them by biblical characters. Everybody in church needs a Paul, they need a Barnabas, and they need a Timothy. If you know the story of those three, um, you'll understand what I'm talking about. You need a Paul, you need someone who's gone before you, who can mentor you and teach you. Um, for some of us, you know, that happened when we were younger, and we may, it may be really spotty now, but, but it happened a long time ago. You need a Barnabas, so Barnabas, the partner of Paul, someone walking beside him. We need someone at the same level as, as us who is a close confidant, who's a close friend that we can um, walk together with in the Christian walk. And we need a Timothy. We need a Timothy, someone to mentor. We need someone from, the, from higher up to mentor us. We need someone on our level to walk beside, and we need someone younger than us to invest in. We need a Paul and a Barnabas and a Timothy. Every Christian needs those three things. We want a church where the younger seek out the advice and wisdom of the older, and we want a church where the older have a burning desire to disciple and mentor the younger generation. So if you're young... Seek out someone in this church to mentor you, someone older. Probably choose someone that's not your family. As often, you don't open up to your family the same way you open up to a non-family member. If you're older, find someone younger in this church to mentor. Be available to them. You need to do this even if you aren't one of the volunteers who serves on Wednesday nights. Kids in our church need the Evelyn Greers and the Bobby Summers to learn from. They need that. As much as you needed that, they need that now. They need older people to invest in them, to pray for them, and to encourage them. A healthy church is one where that's, happen, where, where that's happening. A healthy church is multi-generational. I praise the Lord. I'm looking at um, people of all different ages this morning. We're a multi-generational church. Let's always work to be a multi-generational church. We want a thriving senior adult group, and we want a thriving group of children. We want married couples that are hitting their 50th anniversary, and we want dating couples that are getting married. We want um, teenagers, and we want widows, and we want those widows to be teaching teenage girls in the church what to look for in a man, to not settle for some doofus, right? We want to champion and celebrate the traditions and the heritage of the older generation, and we want to try new things, new ideas that the younger generation has. We want to be a church where the younger people are joyfully singing, great is thy faithfulness, and where the older people are excited to learn songs like Jesus saves. Neither group is bored by each other's preferences. We want to be a church that is regularly growing and maturing. Why? Because heaven will be multi-generational. Heaven will be multi-generational. There will not just be baby boomers in heaven. And there will not just be millennials in heaven. No, those two groups that often butt heads so much will stand beside each other at the throne of Jesus, worshiping with everything they've got. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to put Facebook arguments to shame. That's the point of Titus 2. Notice, a church is to be male and female. You're to have men and women both serving in the church. You're to have multi-generations. You're to have the older generation investing in the younger generation. And we could go on to verse 9 and 10 and talk about how churches should be multi-ethnic. That's why um, it's, a tragic, it's, a tragic, it's a tragedy 
get my words right, it's a tragedy when there are white churches and black churches. They should not be separated. We should worship beside each other like the picture that heaven's going to be. But that's a topic for another sermon. So how does this happen? How does a church um, get to be multi-generational? And how does a church keep that church multi-generational? Simply it happens by the older and more mature taking their responsibility to disciple and mentor the younger and less mature. That's how it happens. Taking up that mantle and doing that. Understand, the world is working overtime to, to disciple young people right now. The world is doing everything they can to, 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 to disciple young people away from Jesus right now. Many of you see the ideas that young people are believing, and you think they're absolutely crazy. And a lot of the ideas that are floating around out there are, but they fall for it. Why? Not because they're stupid. No, most young people are brilliant, and they can articulate the wrong ideas they believe better than you can um, articulate why you believe Christianity. Like, like they're smart. They're brilliant. They believe these false ideas because the culture has slowly discipled them into believing it. They have set up a worldview in their mind where, um, where, in the minds of young people, where crazy ideologies and crazy belief systems make sense. This world is under the influence of Satan, and Satan hates your kids and hates your grandkids because kids and grandkids are image bearers of God, and Satan hates God. He hates God. And he's doing everything he possibly can to keep them from coming to the gospel and to loving Jesus. He wants nothing more than to do that. He's doing everything he possibly can to make sure that the sermons I preach on Sunday mornings and the lessons that um, Clint and Russ and Aaron and Matthew and all of those teach our kids, all those volunteers, he's making sure everything we teach them is either ignored or rejected. He's working overtime to make sure that happens. I remind you what I've told you the past couple weeks, 94% of Christians come to faith in Christ before they're 18 years old, before they're 18 years old. In fact, let's just see. If you were saved before you were 18, raise your hand. I'd say that's about 94%. What does that mean? It means the devil will put forth most of his effort against a person in the first 18 years of their life. And then, by then, he will have laid a foundation in those 18 years that he can build on for the rest of his life. It means... We need to put forth every bit of effort we have to fight against the devil's work in the lives of our young people because he's working overtime against us. We want them singing in church. Thank you, Heather, for leading that. Um, that we want them to recognize the importance of singing. We want them memorizing the books of the Bible and learning the Bible. Thank you, Aaron, for teaching them. We want them going to Infuge and Centricid and getaways like that to be poured into for a week. Thank you, Clinton, Samantha, for that. You know, uh, a couple weeks ago, um, Caleb and I rearranged the worship service a little bit um, for two reasons. First, so I don't have to keep walking up and down off a stage. But secondly, so that kids can be in here longer and can hear the hymns of the faith and can hear that doctrine and theology in the song songs instead of stepping out and not hearing that. You know, I want to um, every now and then step out a Wednesday night prayer meeting and go down and be with our youth and kids and have somebody else lead the youth and kids or lead the prayer meeting. We need to be teaching the deep truths of the faith to our kids now because I promise you the world is teaching them profound ideas that are against those doctrines of the faith. 
I don't understand why churches so often think they have to dumb down the faith for kids. You can make the faith simple without making it meaningless. Kids are learning algebra and biology in school. I promise you they can handle, handle the Trinity and God's sovereignty. One way the Bible gets dumbed down for kids is when every Bible story is turned into just a moral lesson for kids to learn. One of the ones we do this with so often is David and Goliath. David and Goliath. How do we tell David and Goliath to people? Well, you've got giants in your life, and you need to take those stones and sling it and knock those giants down. The problem is, and more than often in my life, I'm not David in that story. I'm the scared Israelites over in the corner, like, how in the world am I going to get out of this? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Jesus is David. Jesus is the one who steps in and kills our giants. Uh, we are scared to death over in the corner trying to figure out what to do. Kids need to learn more than anything. The Bible is not an encyclopedia of moral lessons. No, it's all about Jesus. It's meant to direct your attention to the Son of God and worship him and surrender your life to him. The devil loves good, good moral lessons. He loves for the book of Daniel to be about daring to be a Daniel or a diet plan. He will teach you that about Daniel so that you don't look to Jesus in the book of Daniel. You look to eat your vegetables and water and you'll lose weight. Ephesians 4, 13 and 14. Talking about the church. The, the purpose of the church is that we all minister, we all um, participate in the ministry together. Verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes." We want to we, we help our young people reach spiritual adulthood so that they will no longer be tossed in, to and fro by this world. You, you notice the words Paul used there, crafty, cunning. Where have we seen those words before? Well, Genesis 3, the devil in the garden. He's crafty. He's cunning. He does everything he can to deceive us. The devil is doing everything he can to make your kids not see church as important. Sadly, he'll often use family priorities to do it. You're not saved by being at church, but the three major areas of growth in your spiritual life are your prayer life, your time in God's word, and your time with the people of God. And so if you make no priority for your family to be here, you're essentially making your kids be stillborn spiritually. Dads, this is where you step in. You need to take up the mantle to lead your family well. Dads, do you understand that God created you to be a hero for your family? He created you to fight an incredible fight to lead your kids to Jesus and grow them in knowing and loving him more. And if you won't step up and do that, you're literally abandoning your birthright and the souls of your kids for a can of beer and a football game on TV. You were created for more than that. There's a reason that you and I love watching movies like Die Hard and Mission Impossible. Do you know why? Like, there's a reason why I love watching Captain America or Luke Skywalker kick butt. Do you know why? We were made to be heroic like them. We were made to come in and kick butt and take names. We were made to do that. We were made to do that spiritually. And the sinful tendency of all men is to be passive and not care, to not fight off those things that are trying to consume their family. Dads, don't you understand 
If the child leads the family to church, 4% of families go to church together. If the mom leads the family to church, 13% of families go to church together. If the dad leads the family to church, 91% of families go to church together. It's astronomically different. The world and the devil are doing everything they can to toss your kids to and fro. Social media allows for kids to communicate with anybody about anything instantly. TikTok is full of this kind of stuff. It's not just a thing that goes on in New York and Los Angeles. No, I promise you, the majority of kids, if they have a smartphone, have at some point seen inappropriate images, and they have at some point heard compelling arguments about Christianity being false. Videos go viral in a day. Trends go around the country before you can blink. So many of the trends kids are facing today can be summed up in what is called moral relativism. Moral relativism. The idea of moral relativism is truth is not objective. It's subjective. It's not a rock-solid truth that does not change regardless of time or space. It, it, truth is subjective based on who you are and your personal experiences. Truth changes. What is true for you may not be true for me. That's the predominant thing out there in the world today. So when you have this as the foundation, what do you get? You get things like all religions are essentially the same. You get things like love is love. You get things like you can be with you can be whoever you want to be. You get things like I'm living my truth. My personal experience is objective truth and you need to understand that. Your personal experience may be objective truth too even if it contradicts mine. You can sleep with whoever you want to sleep with and how many ever people you want to. Everybody eventually makes it to heaven on their own. You can't object to someone's spiritual path or you're a bigot. A fruit of this morality, uh, of this viewpoint, is a morality that changes day to day. So what was morally wrong 10 years ago may not be morally wrong today by the culture standards. 10 years from now, it may be morally wrong again. It changes that much. You understand, morality and truth don't change, right? But your kids are being told that it does by social media and by the internet. We, of course, know this kind of logic doesn't hold up, that truth is relative. It's all based on your own experience. You should live your truth. Why? Because if there's no such thing as objective moral truth, and if we really, um, if there's no such thing as objective moral truth, and if we really want to let anybody live their truth, then what Vladimir Putin is doing right now in Ukraine, we have no moral objection to it. He's just living his truth. His truth is to invade countries and kill innocent people with bombs. And how dare we say anything against that, bigots? That's where this leads. The problem with dealing with these issues, though, is that often the church is not actually giving kids much to want about Jesus in place of it. They haven't made Jesus attractive to kids. They've just went on tirades about all the stuff God doesn't like. You've heard that kind of preaching, haven't you? Facebook is of the devil. Rock and roll is of the devil. Harry Potter's of the devil. Tofu is of the devil. And a young person hears this and thinks, everything I love is of the devil, so I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. And we haven't given them anywhere to go in return. Often the things we call of the devil are very exciting and pleasurable things. And since we offer no better pleasure, young people ignore the church's preaching and indulge themselves. The world offers our kids joy, but doesn't deliver on it. 
Jesus offers our kids fullness of joy, but the devil does everything to stop them from getting to that joy. One of my favorite verses of the Bible, Psalm 1611, in your presence, you, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus offers your kid the path to their life. Jesus offers your kids fullness of joy. Jesus offers your kids pleasures that last forever. And usually we direct them away from the devil, but not to Jesus. This is why church is so important for your kids. This is why it's crucial that I preach the word of God so deeply. This is why it's important to those of you who teach our kids and do so well um, to, that, that you pray over those kids that you teach. It's why, um, parents, it's why you need to first and foremost have your kids at church and not just the beach and the ball field. This is why even if you don't have kids in this church, you need to serve our kids in nursery, in kingdom kids, in VBS, in so many other ways. They need to have a worldview shaped by the church if they don't, the world will shape that worldview for them, no problem. Listen to this quote from a famous pastor. You are so fond of your children that you have neglected their discipline. Thus you have allowed your family to become terribly corrupt. This is why the Lord is angry with you, but he's ready to heal all those past deeds. When do you think that quote was said? In 2018? I think the 1990s? I think the 1890s is actually said in 160 AD. The fact is the temptation of parents for all of history has been to think the best way to love your, your kids is to give them exactly what they want instead of what they need. They may want to be involved in seven extracurricular activities, but if it's going to take them away from church, you've got to be the wise parent and speak into their life. They need to be in the worship service. They need to be at youth group and kids ministry. They need to be in the events involved in the life of our church. They may not want to go to church, but frankly, you're their parent. You have to lead them to places they don't want to go. If you gave your kids everything they wanted, they wouldn't have teeth today because they would have ate candy for dinner their entire childhood. You were smart enough to know, feed them protein and vegetables. Your kids need the church. They don't need the church as an occasional hobby. They need it weekly. And church, the kids in this church need you. I remind you that terribly tragic statistic. 90% of kids leave the faith when they go to college. But it drops to 50% if those kids had one relationship in the church outside of their family members or the youth minister. Drops 40% likely that they're going to leave the faith. We must be a church that invests in the younger generation. So I challenge you this morning to consider ways you might disciple the next generation. Uh, have a relationship with the goal of seeing them saved and, and to grow into spiritual adulthood. Places this might take place. It's not necessarily a class, though maybe you need to lead a class of kids. Um, maybe it's in a group. And this wouldn't necessarily be kids. Maybe you do this with, with dads in our church. Maybe you're you know, in your 70s and you want to um, invest in the dads in this church because if you want to invest in the kids, what do you do? Invest in their parents. Maybe you invest in them with um, you know, meeting weekly for Bible study and praying for them. And you don't have to have a seminary degree to do this. I mean, literally, open up to the Gospel of John and you all sit there over coffee and you read the first paragraph and you look up and say, all right, what, what sticks out to you? What can we apply to our lives from this? Okay, cool. Let's go to the next paragraph. And you just go until your hour's up and pray together and share what's going on in life. Maybe it's through an older married couple befriending and mentoring a younger couple. 
I'm convinced that a lot of struggling marriages could be healed if the couple had an older married couple to mentor them that isn't their family. Like, oh, you've been married 50 years. You went through this same problem that we're going through? Wow, so there's a future after this. Wow. Maybe it's through hospitality, having people in your home, having them over to not just have dinner, but to see you live your life in your home because we're completely different in our house than we are here. Let me ask you a very real question I want you to consider. Have you ever had somebody in this church that you're not family with and who you don't really have a friendship with over to your house for dinner? I challenge you, this month, try that. Pick somebody out, have them over for dinner. What does this relationship include? First, it includes setting an example. You set an example for what it looks like to follow Jesus to those people. It's through teaching. Remember, you don't have to have a seminary degree. Um, You have all that you need, Scripture says, for life and godliness in this book. Then it's through encouraging, encouraging. Encourage them in their life. Be the biggest supporter of those young people that you possibly can. Typically, a generation always thinks ill of the generations coming after it. Um, I'm finding myself tempted to already do it with kids younger than me. Um, I'm already having that attitude of what's, what's wrong with those kids, and I've got to fight against that. Those of you here who are 80, I promise you, if you think back 65 years ago, your grandparents' generation thought your generation was going to be the downfall of America, and here we are. Don't despise the younger generation just because they're different than you. Of course they're different from you. They grew up in a time different than you did. Don't scoff at them. Encourage them and love them. Encourage them with scripture. Encourage them to be involved in our church. Don't assume they're not here because they're lazy. Maybe they've never been taught the importance of church. And pass the torch on. Pass the torch on. We never want one generation to be the only people leading and serving in our church. We want the older people here serving and leading, and we want the younger serving and leading. We want youth serving. We want young couples serving. We want to be a place where all generations love and want to serve. This is our high and holy calling. It's our high and holy calling. We don't gather at church every week just to feel good about ourselves and hopefully hear some music that we like. No, we're part of this church to pass the faith on. 2 Timothy 2, 2, um, you've been entrusted with truth, now pass it on to those who will be able to teach others also. It's this chain of command. We teach so that the next generation can teach. Here's the deal. A church is always one generation away from death. That's the sad truth, and that's why so many churches die every year. Not the church overall. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church worldwide, but individual congregations are always one generation away from death. Now, don't hear me saying that's our church because it's not, but it it, it could be our church 80 years from now if nothing, um, if we don't pass on the faith, right? It could be any church in 80 years if they don't pass on the faith. If we don't pass on the faith to the next generation, then when we all die, they'll sell our building and build a dollar general here. We know that'll happen. They're popping up everywhere. We don't want that to happen. More importantly than that, we don't want our kids or grandkids going to hell. That's, that should be our biggest driving factor. I love my son so much. I pray for him every day that the day would come soon that he hears the gospel. Obviously, he's got to grow up a little bit, but he would hear it and repent and believe. Because if he doesn't, he will go to hell when he dies. Right now, as cute as my son is, he has no guarantee of eternal life with Jesus because he has not repented and believed the gospel yet. And I don't assume that's going to happen as sure as he's going to get his driver's license. No, 
I will give my life to investing in him so that he can hear the gospel and believe, and I'll leave it up to the Holy Spirit to save him. So my question is, parents, will you do this for your own kids? Grandparents, will you do this for your grandkids? And those of you in this church who are more mature and older, will you do that for those coming after you? It's your high and holy calling. So I charge you this morning, take up your calling and be faithful to pass the faith on to the next generation. Let's pray. Father, it has been our job to, to invest in the next generation literally since you created us. Lord, when you said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that was our job. That, that's our job physically. It's also our job spiritually. We're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with, 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 with Christians, with people who know and follow Jesus. And much time that takes place right here in this place that we're at. And Lord, I thank you so much that we have a church of people who do that like crazy. I'm so grateful for that. Lord, I pray that you give us spiritual strength to continue with that. I pray that what I've preached this morning has reminded us the importance of that, that we would continue on being faithful. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up um, Christ followers of you from our church, maybe those who haven't even been saved yet. And Lord, I pray that you would use those kids as they grow um, to do great things for you. Lord, maybe you're going to call some to be missionaries out of them. Maybe you're going to call some to be pastors. Maybe you're going to call some to serve you in ways that we don't even know. But Lord, would you use um, our investing in our kids that they would grow to spiritual adulthood and that they would be used by you in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Now's your time to